This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And today we have an episode that is cutting across three time zones as I'm joined by uh, Aaron Turner and Eugenio Dominguez. Aaron Turner is an assistant professor in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Sociocultural Studies at the University of Arizona. Thanks, Aaron, for being here. Oh, you're welcome. And Eugenio Dominguez is an assistant professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. Thanks, Eugenio, for making the time for this as well. My pleasure. So we're going to be talking together about their article that's appearing currently in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. The article is entitled, English Learners' Participation in Mathematical Discussion, Shifting Positionings and Dynamic Identities. Um, but before we get to that article, I'd like to ask everybody to just describe their grad school experience and their dissertation. So Aaron, I'll start with you. So I went to grad school at UT Austin in Austin, Texas, and focused on uh, elementary mathematics education. My advisor was Susan Emson. And my dissertation focused on really fleshing out the idea of teaching mathematics for social justice in a middle school mathematics classroom. I worked with a sixth grade math teacher in New York City over the course of a year to develop different curricular units that brought together the the core content that she needed to teach as a sixth grade mathematics teacher and salient issues in the student's school community and surrounding neighborhood community and that allowed them to use mathematics to investigate those issues and in particular to look at issues of equity and social justice. And we looked at the learning and the participation that resulted in those, from those units. Mm-hmm. And Susan Emson is involved in the current study that we're going to be talking about as well? Yes, yes. So the current study um, was a study that we conducted. I, was, I did a short postdoc at UT after graduation, and it was the focus of that, the research that occurred during that postdoc period. Okay. And Hinio, um can you tell us about your dissertation and grad school experience? Sure. I also had the um, pleasure of working with uh, Susan Emson as my dissertation chair at the University of Texas, Austin. The title of my dissertation was The Discourse of Mathematization Bilingual Students Reinventing Mathematics and Themselves as Mathematical Thinkers. What I did is I visited 25 homes of Latino bilingual elementary students, and uh, I interviewed them and their parents about uh, all the familiar experiences in English and in Spanish that the kids participated in. I used that uh, information to create uh, mathematics problems that reflected those familiar experiences, as well as mathematically equivalent problems, but with unfamiliar experiences. So what I learned from the results is that when they solve problems in Spanish, the way that they talked uh, in pairs as they were solving problems, their conversations uh, reminded me a lot of um, the concept of exploratory talk, and they were also collaborating a lot, and they were together, they were taking risks um, when solving um, problems that obviously they didn't have the solution for. Uh, They were more risk-taking in the Spanish versus in English. Other uh, contrast in in English is that um, their talk was reminding me a lot of the calculational uh, discourse 
um, and also um, the way they solve problems in English was very individual as opposed to the social way that they were um, solving the problems in Spanish. Your background interests really do seem to intersect uh, with this article, or this article is situated at the intersection of your interests. Um, so I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about you know, what personally has driven you to focus on English learners and to focus on mathematics discourse. Um, so before coming to grad school, I was a bilingual classroom teacher in Phoenix. I taught in a dual language uh, program with students that were native Spanish speakers and others that were native English speakers and all were developing bilinguals. Um, and we used a standards-based curriculum and so one of the goals of my mathematics teaching at that time was to have kids solve problems and discuss problems. And I noticed um, as much as I, I tried to orchestrate discussions that have really broad participation the language of the discussion seemed, so sometimes the discussions were in English, sometimes they were in Spanish because we followed a fairly strict dual language model, but the language of the discussions really seemed to impact the kind of which students were elevated to positions as active participants and which students really withdrew and, and were less mm -hmm. active participants. And I, I wanted to understand better all, all the time that I was teaching how to, to orchestrate those discussions so the participation was more equitable. And so in graduate school, and then particularly when I finished and, and we had this postdoc research experience, um, we had the wonderful opportunity with, with Susan Empson to design an after-school program that really allowed us to look at mathematical discourse in settings where kids spoke both languages or one language or the other and were at various stages of bilingualism. And it really... Um, it was wonderful because it was a way that I could connect back to these issues that had been, in some sense, burning since I first started teaching. Mm. Well, um, I am also an, an English learner. Um, I came to the to this country as a you know as an English learner in my mid twenties, um, and so that in itself, you know, the age that I came to this country makes a difference. Um, when um, when I think about what I have observed, um, the you know in the 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 school age, the elementary uh, Latino kids, in that um, uh, I believe that I came to um, to the U.S. with a, with a more developed uh, voice and a in a in a sense of of um, who I was. Um, and so that that sense, you know, and that that developed uh, voice um, made me think about uh, how little the the elementary kids um, talk during, particularly during the mathematics uh, class. And uh, so I saw this, like um, in, in in numerous uh, uh, elementary classrooms, uh, not not only in Austin, but. Um, you know, in, in Chicago where I did my uh, postdoc. So um, I started um, really, you know, organizing my ideas about the importance of discourse and um, in giving the students an opportunity to participate in mathematical uh, discussions. When I saw, when I went to uh, visit those 25 homes and at the same time I was seeing um, how in classrooms the students were participating in, in very different ways as opposed to um, the way they were participating uh, you know, in their homes. 
and um, I became very, very interested in um, studying more, you know, um, the, the, the discourse um, patterns and, and the opportunities for students to, to engage uh, their voices and their, their ideas um, more in a way that, you know, would resemble how they participate in their homes. But, um, you know, in the context of the, the elementary school classrooms. And as both of you are pursuing these research interests, <clears throat> you've used the theoretical lens of positioning to really, you know, dig into the issues in the classroom and to look at the students' roles and the students' voice um, and the students' participation. So I was wondering if you could just help us understand that perspective of positioning. So uh, positioning, um, the way I, I see it, you know, after um, writing, um, co-authoring this this paper with with Aaron. Um, I think we are doing at least a couple of things with um, the construct of positioning. Um, on the one hand, I think we are using it to um, to get a description of um, this, the Latino, the, the bilingual uh, students' participation in mathematical discussions. Um, that description obviously um, gave us, you know, the results that we have now in in the paper, and um, in a sense of how the the students participated uh, through multiple ways that you know they were positioned, and also multiple ways in which they positioned themselves and others. But I also see positioning more than simply describing what happened. Um, so in that sense, you know, the description um, part, I see it more aligned with an interpretivist um, perspective. But um, I am also seeing positioning as a way to consider change, um, what is possible in, in, in classrooms that, uh, that include English learners. So obviously our, our results um, uh, show that um, by shifting uh, the positions that were available to English learners and to their peers, um, we were able to see um, how uh, all of them, English learners and non-English learners, uh, were able to share and to um, consider um, everybody's ideas and to challenge those ideas. And so um, that part of the analysis, you know, when we use positioning, um, I really believe that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more aligned with a, with a critical uh, theory perspective. Because, again, uh, I, think, I think our analysis shows um, what is possible in those classrooms. So you're saying uh, as, you're, as you're really looking in, in these mathematics classrooms and at the discussions, you're not only seeing what's there, but you're also kind of using that as a springboard to imagine what might be different or other possibilities. Is that kind of what you're referring to? So yes, um, I see positioning as, as, as possibilities, as you know, um, this idea of what is possible. And the possible is, for me, is always informed by what I see these English learners um, what they do 
in contexts that are, that are not the, the school classroom. So again, this um, analysis reminds me again of what I saw the kids do in, um, in, their, in their homes and how there in that environment, how the parents were positioning them uh, really help them behave in very productive ways, in very engaging ways. And so they were responding accordingly. They were taking on those positions, those agentive positions at home. Uh, where the parent, you know, would would request something or challenge something, and so the students, you know, would respond respond accordingly. Um, and so, for me, the possibility is always um, illustrated or illuminated by how these students um, interact in other contexts with other uh, adults and how they are capable of being productive and being engaged in discussions, not necessarily mathematical, obviously, but, um, you know, how they participate very in, in very agentive ways in uh, non-school uh, environments. And that's where I think positioning is so powerful because it can help us to understand the nuances of how kids are being set up in relation to task, how kids are setting up one another, setting up themselves, and I think that that depth of analysis is really critical, both to understand what's happening in the moment, but as Eugenio said, to also understand what might happen differently and, and how we might construct these interactions or restructure these interactions in ways that elevate all of the knowledge and resources that English learners bring to the table versus marginalizing them or making them not relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in our analysis, we really we look at positioning both as, as talk, so the kinds of things that teachers say, the things that students say, but we also look at other features of the discursive environment of the classroom, so things like norms about what languages are appropriate for group discussion, for public group discussion, um, expectations about how one shares one's thinking and what are expected and appropriate ways of, of responding or clarifying ideas. So all of those elements of the discursive environment we, we saw as, as part of the, the story of how English learners are positioned by others and how they position themselves as, as important to our analysis, really. Mm -hmm. And so let's, um, let's dig into that analysis a little bit more. But beforehand, can you just help us um, get the context of the study? So this took place um, in an after-school mathematics program, is that right? Yes, we ran an after-school math mathematics program that met twice a week for about 10 to 12 weeks in uh, elementary school. And the student, the student participants were all fourth and fifth graders. And they were, we ran two separate groups. We had two classrooms that were kind of a math after-school math club type setting mm -hmm. and kids were both recommended to participate because they were struggling in mathematics or teachers thought they might benefit or because the students themselves were interested and across the two classrooms um, we had a a good number of English learners there were also students that were uh, native English speakers that knew very little Spanish um, and then there were students that really were were very dominant in, in Spanish and were beginning to learn English and other students that were farther along in their development of English. So there was a real range of language backgrounds. And when you wanted to investigate student positioning in the mathematical discussions, uh, what data did you collect from those, uh, those after-school programs? 
So we videotaped both sessions. We had a camera that followed the teacher at all time and captured whole group interactions between the teacher and students, and then that followed the teacher from small group to small group. And then we also independently videotaped small groups when they were working on problem solving. The general structure was the teacher would pose a task to the whole group, children would work on the task in partners or individually in small groups, and then they would pull together at the end of each session to discuss what they came up with, what their strategies were, and what they discovered about the problems. We also had student notebooks, but primarily we based our analysis for this paper off the transcripts from the videos. And I imagine that yielded a lot of data. Um, so how did you narrow down the scope for something you know that you could tackle in this article? There's a long story to that. <laughs> we'll probably go for the short the, version if there the is short, one. <laughs> the, yeah, the short story is we first summarized each session and we chunked it into interactions. And the summary of each interaction included who participated and a general sense of what that participation looked like. And that allowed us to... We had previously selected case study students, which were seven English learners from across the two groups, and that allowed us to quickly identify each instance of each of our case study students' participation. Um, and then we selected instances where they participated in what we called agentive problem-solving ways. So if their participation was limited to just saying the answer, or saying yes, or saying I agree, we didn't include those in our, in our analysis, but times when they shared their thinking, when they commented on another student's strategy, when they justified something, when they made a claim, those all counted as more agentive participation. So that resulted in about 65 episodes, and each episode was a sustained interaction around a particular strategy for a particular problem. So some episodes were four or five minutes long, others were 12 or 15 minutes long, but we then just analyzed those 65 episodes for this paper. And so what, what did you focus on with, with that analysis? So we started with a subset of the episodes, and um, several members of our research team coded the same subset of episodes. And we paid attention to um, how things were said, whether idea, so the language, whether they were presented with gestures and diagrams, kind of the, the context surrounding students' ideas. We paid attention to moves that teachers and students made to do kind of reflexive self-positioning or interactively to position one another. So setting up somebody as having a valuable idea or setting up somebody as not having a relevant idea, whatever the positioning looked like. Um, we also, we only looked at episodes that were in group discussions. I, I should have noted that earlier, but so all of these episodes were public group discussions and involved the whole group. You know, or at least half the class. We had some okay. times where the class was split in half, but they, they were public discussions. And we made that decision purposefully because we think that the kind of positioning that happens publicly mm -hmm. um, really over time has the potential to impact how kids begin to see themselves and how they begin to see one another. The coding of the episodes was then, we analyzed across episodes to distill patterns, things that were happening repeatedly that seemed to be consequential. I'm speaking with Aaron Turner and Eugenio Dominguez about their article that they co-authored with Luz Maldonado and Susan Empson. It's appearing in the current uh, special equity issue of JRME. So having done that analysis and, and looked at the video of the after-school program with the, and particularly focusing on the fourth and fifth graders, what were some of the different ways that you saw students participating in the mathematical discussions, the public mathematical discussions? Well, the English learners in this uh, after-school program participated in different ways and also some of those ways were more common than others 
And so I want to talk about what those differences could imply, but also I, o I also want to talk about um, beyond the differences, um, what their participation implies. So, um, first of all, the, the most common ways that they participated in uh, were things such as, ex you know, when they explain their own strategy or um, when they provided justification, valid justifications for, again, their own strategies. And also when they stated um, what they were thinking about a classmate's uh, strategy or idea. So to me, those, uh, you know, what's, what's common, um, you know, across those ways of participating is, you know, there's something very relational in, 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 um, in these um, ways that they um, uh, expressed and also consider uh, their peers' ideas. Um, less common ways that they participated included things such as um, uh, making mathematical claims um, or making mathematical connections. Now, if we think about these less common ways, making claims and making connections, it seems to me that the student has to have a strong mathematical identity in order to engage in these ways of participating in mathematical discussions. And so this takes, takes us back to um, considering uh, where English la language learners have been um, learning mathematics and um, wondering um, you know, what kinds of opportunities um, they have been offered um, in their previous experiences, uh, particularly in, um, in the classrooms um, that they have been learning mathematics. So it seems to me that, um, you know, uh, when, when we um, got uh, the students in this after-school program, um, on one hand, yes, they, they were uh, able to uh, actively um, engage in discussions with um, with other kids, you know, included including um, non-English learners. But on the other hand, um, the more um, you know, challenging or perhaps more um, independent uh, ways of engaging, such as making those claims and making connections. Perhaps you know they they were still you know um, becoming. Uh, used to that that way of participating and so um, so again it I, I really think it has to do with um, how many opportunities um, uh, these kids um, had in their past and in most mathematics classrooms uh, teachers and textbooks are positioned as the ones that really supply the mathematical claims or they, that draw the strong connections and so you know there's there's quite a strong tradition I would say of, of positioning in mathematics you know education in that way Right, right. And we don't know a lot about students' experiences during the school day. We, we worked with them in an after-school program, but I think mm -hmm. we, can, we can suspect that by fourth or fifth grade, these students may have had many years of not being asked to come up with their own claims or not being asked to, to be the ones to generate the mathematical connections and instead to have all of that come from teachers or textbooks, as you're saying. We were inviting new forms of participation for a lot of these kids. 
um, so the, the whole setup of the after-school program wasn't necessarily the setup of their classroom during the day. Mm -hmm. The other uh, dimension of this, uh, these findings in, in how they participated in different ways, I, I really think it, um, it goes beyond differences. And uh, I am saying this because what, what, uh, I think what we see in these different ways of participating is um, a, a good sense of what they were talking about. In other words, they knew what they were talking about whether they were explaining their own ideas or whether they were uh, considering uh, somebody's ideas uh, or whether they were providing justification for uh, their own ideas. And so to me that's, that's really, really relevant um, for um, creating a sense of um, um, mathematical um, understanding and, 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 and helping them develop a strong or stronger um, mathematical identities. Um, the, the fact that you know they were um, showing and demonstrating that they were they, they, they knew what they were talking about. So um, in the article you present three episodes focusing on particular students but um, you, you draw out some of the themes that you saw looking across the data and I was wondering, Eugenio, if you could talk a little bit about the theme that emerged of the role of Spanish. Certainly. The, I believe the, the use of Spanish in, in our after-school program was, um, was deliberate. Um, and um, it, it, unfortunately, um, it, it, is, it is something so persistent among teachers, and that is... The teachers and also, um, you know, peers tend to notice what um, what English learners don't know yet, or what they don't have yet. Um, so it is very common, you know, that um, that um, English learners become visible for um, teachers as well as for classmates for not knowing English. Now, this visibility creates, um, you know, at the same time creates a, an invisibility, which is, you know, um, peers and teachers don't necessarily see um, the mathematical ideas and the strategies that uh, these students are capable of. So, uh, thinking back, you know, in our, in our three cases that, that, that you mentioned, um, particularly case one, um, which is the, the episode where uh, Ernesto, an English learner, is explaining um, his strategy for um, finding six equal parts. Um, and so, um, so one of the students, uh, a non-English uh, uh, learner, uh, Corinne, um, wants to respond to that to that idea to that strategy that Ernesto um, presented and so um, Corinne's asks um, can he understand English um, so for me uh, her question really revealed um, the uh, visibility that I was talking about and that we mentioned in, in our in our um, article um, that um, you know the the first thing that 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 um, that is noticed about English learners is uh, again they don't know the English language. Can he understand English? 
Um, however, in this episode, um, after that question, the question actually served to um, create um, a series of positionings that started with the teacher saying, yes, he does. And also, you know, um, adding to that by saying, you know, in case he doesn't, uh, then, you know, someone in our, in our group can help him understand um, this idea that Corinne has and vice versa, you know, we can, we can, um, we can help everyone, you know, understand um, what he's, what he's just said. So, um, the use of Spanish in, the, in this um, after school program, um, I believe, uh, um, changed the the visibility of, of of English learners as you know some someone who doesn't know English to someone who who really knows uh, mathem powerful mathematical ideas. So I'm going to refer listeners to the article um, because there really are some some rich excerpts of data, some nice transcripts where you can start to hear the student's voice and really get a sense of the interactions uh, in in this after school classroom. But just to pull out a, another theme um, for this episode, so Aaron, I was wondering if you could say um, something about the teacher's role in having students uh, share their ideas, clarify their ideas. Um, so there's another example in the article. It's a case constructed around Felipe. And one thing that happens when Felipe is sharing his strategy is that the group initially doesn't make any sense of his idea. He's describing um, how to partition things, he's solving a fractions problem, and students really challenge him and say it doesn't make sense and where did you get these numbers, and one thing that the teacher does is she um, immediately kind of responds by saying that Felipe does understand his own idea and that it, what Felipe is saying really makes sense to him, and she validates that experience is something that goes beyond just Felipe or beyond just an English learner, that that kind of can happen to all of us at some time, but that we understand our own ideas, but other people might not be able to make sense of them, and that it's our task collectively. So she positioned the group as having the task of really understanding what Felipe was saying. So she brought them all into conversation with Felipe versus just allowing them to say, Felipe, your idea doesn't make sense, and let's move on to something else. And then as the conversation continued, she repeatedly um, kept P Felipe in that role as somebody that is doing something sensible mathematically and helped other students ask questions of him to pull out the idea and helped scaffold his contribution so that he could clarify what he was doing. And ultimately, the, the class did make sense of, of his thinking and his strategy. And what was really nice is that it she the moves that she used some revoicing moves and some really strategic questioning moves maintained Felipe in the position of being the one that was doing the mathematical work and he was the one that was doing the clarification versus she could have just taken over for example and explained the strategy herself for the class and and that didn't happen and so there was a a really nice way of keeping him in that active role while helping everybody to understand his thinking we're discussing the article English Learners' Participation in Mathematical Discussion, Shifting Positionings and Dynamic Identities, which is in uh, the current volume of the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. Um, I was wondering if there was a particular takeaway point or a final thought that you wanted to leave with the listeners um, attached to this article. One thing that I'll um, just say briefly is I think that we've found that 
there were there were two dimensions to the the positioning that were really critical and one was how English learners were set up to to have many and repeated and and rich opportunities to contribute their ideas so the classroom was set up in a way and the, the teacher through her talk invited students in a way that really opened a space for students to share their ideas in English or in Spanish using gestures in all different ways. But, and that's something we've heard about a lot in the literature on English learners and mathematical discussion. But I think what has had less attention, and this was a, something that we discovered to be a really important dimension of our analysis, was how the other students are brought into that conversation. So it's not just about giving English learners a chance to explain their thinking, but it's about helping the other students in the classroom, including maybe other English learners, but the other students to orient to that English learner's idea and to begin to see that English learner as somebody who has really worthwhile mathematical ideas to contribute and something that we all, that the class collectively could learn from. So there was this dual work of the teacher to, to position the English learners in particular ways and also to bring other students into conversation with the English learner's ideas. And, to me, that's one thing that, that I really took away from the analysis and I found powerful. Mm -hmm. For me, the main takeaway is, um, I think, after uh, this experience, I am more sensitive, um, perhaps more uh, careful about how I approach interactions uh, in mathematics with um, any student, not just uh, English learners, but um, I am very aware of um, the fact that the questions I ask, the tasks that I bring to an interaction, the um, opportunities that um, those questions and those tasks uh, offer to, to students uh, really uh, can make a difference and um, you know how student how I position my students and um, another important takeaway is in the sense of uh, the work that I do as a math educator with uh, um, in serve I mean uh, future teachers um, so I am uh, constantly reminding them and reminding myself of the kinds of opportunities that we provide um, students, you know, the diverse students, to uh, understand mathematics and to understand themselves in relation to mathematics. I'm speaking with Aaron Turner and Eugenio Dominguez, uh, and I do want to say, too, if there's a listener that's interested in hearing more um, and getting some insight in some other research about particularly uh, Latino and Latina students, I'll refer them to episode 1201 with Bill Zahner. Um, just a quick plug there. Um, before I let Aaron and Eugenio go, though, I want to ask them one more question, which I ask all my guests, which is to get away from math education for a second. If you weren't in math education, uh, what would you be doing? And I'll maybe start with Eugenio. Oh, I would love to be a fashion designer. Oh, really? Yes. Um, I really think that um, the work that they do um, is uh, so fascinating. Um, they are into creating something different, which, you know, they want to have an identity. They want to be known for, you know, what they do. They are also into um, what's possible. So they like to take risks, 
you know every every year every collection um, it's a it's a new challenge for for these people these designers and it's also a very dynamic um, profession so again uh, they 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 are very uh, connected to um to what's going on in so many different um, areas of um, you know uh, people um, work um um, you know, uh, what people like, uh, tastes and uh, changes and trends and uh, colors and, um, you know, so many things that um, it makes the profession so dynamic that I think is very fascinating. It's a very important profession that, you know, it, it, has, it has a lot to do with, you know, this idea of um, positioning. Um, they come up with with a new product, and you know we uh, gravitate some of us towards you know you know what we see, and so that in turn sort of like help people you know to position ourselves and you know others to position us you know depending on you know um, our likes or you know what we wear and you know what we do with you know those fashions. So, and Aaron, we're curious about you as well. Um, so I think I would also be doing something different <laughs> from math education if, as much as I love, absolutely love my work, I think I would be a midwife, which probably sounds odd, but I had, I have, I have three children, had such a wonderful, wonderful experience having them under the, the care of a midwife and found it to be such an empowering experience um, for, for me as a woman and I think in general how midwives relate to women and families, really just positions women as um, knowledgeable about themselves, about their their bodies, about their, their families, and mm -hmm. really gives them a sense of agency that, that, in my experience, hasn't been typical in kind of the medical community. And so yeah. that would be what I would be doing. Yeah, that's interesting. And so I'm, I'm a very atypical case uh, because I was actually born uh, with a midwife in a farmhouse in northern Michigan in the Upper Peninsula. Nice. Yeah, so I was actually born right in the house, and that's the same house that I grew up in. So it's, it's always been kind of a unique thing for me to have that. Yeah, that's wonderful. So uh, I've been speaking with Aaron Turner from the University of Arizona and Eugenio Dominguez from Michigan State University. Thanks both for being here. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you very much.